It is not red or blue. It is green. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Lucy Caldwell in for Ron Streslow. This is the weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Lene, so good to be with you again. Delightful to see you. Also returning to the roundup is Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine, and he's written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He's the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich, and The Age of Conspiracy. Welcome, Andy. Great to be back. On this week's Roundup, first, we'll zoom in on Lori Lightfoot's defeat in the Chicago mayor's race and what this signals about voters' perceptions of crime, real or imagined. Then, we'll look at the bombshell revelations about how Fox News was discussing election deniers in private while they put them on the air following Trump's defeat in the 2020 election. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss the rise of the career candidate. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public feed. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link you can use to listen in any major podcast player. Or option two, if you only listen into the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, Lori Lightfoot became the first incumbent mayor of Chicago to lose a re-election bid in 40 years. She won just 17% of the vote, failing to advance to the runoff. Over the course of her bid for re-election, Lightfoot faced challenges from the right and the left. Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson gained the support of the Chicago Teachers Union and staked out a position to Lightfoot's left. Former Chicago School CEO Paul Vallis heads into the April runoff as the favorite. He won 34% of the vote to Johnson's 20%. Wallace was endorsed by the local Fraternal Order of Police, that's the major police union, and is running on a law and order message. He's calling for an expanded police force and increasing arrest rates. Wallace told voters, quote, crime is out of control. Jamie Dominguez, a political science professor at Northwestern University, told the Associated Press that crime rates have increased in the downtown and north side of Chicago, making it a higher priority issue for voters. Dominguez told the AP that it was historically, quote, a pocketed matter that was largely isolated to Black and Latino neighborhoods. Violent crime fell in 2022 in Chicago from a peak during the pandemic, but burglaries have continued to increase. And crime as an issue has taken a front seat in local politics in cities across the country. In June, voters in San Francisco recalled District Attorney Chesa Boudin over concerns of rising property crime and a lack of prosecution in drug trafficking cases. A campaign to recall Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gaston failed to make it on the ballot. Their petition focused on the rise in property crime and smash-and-grab robberies. 
in Pennsylvania, Republicans in the state house are attempting to impeach Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner because of his charging decisions. So I'll put it to both of you. Maybe we'll start with you, Andy. How are both of you thinking about the focus on crime that we're seeing across the country in our dialogue? The issue of crime, especially as it plays into elections, is something actually that I really started thinking about before this really pitched battle in Chicago, but actually looking toward the most recent mayoral race in New York. New York mayoral races are always a rough and tumble Democratic primary. You know, they're a royal rumble, basically. You have all of these different candidates who all kind of represent different constituencies, different ideologies. They try to stake out a policy position, competing against each other. Who emerges out of this most recent New York City mayoral race? Uh, none other than the current mayor, Eric Adams. Eric Adams, a former member of the NYPD, someone who campaigned on this law and order you know, taking a tougher stance on crime, both violent crime and property crime in New York City. It was really with Adams's election that I started to think, you know, as a reporter watching these races around the country, uh, something interesting is happening here. It feels like the pandemic and this rise in violent crime and, and nonviolent crime that we've witnessed over the last three years, two, two and a half, three years, is starting to find its way to the ballot box. And so I see this Chicago result uh, as a continuation of what happened in New York. I also think it's you know playing out again, as you mentioned, Lucy, in San Francisco, Philadelphia, around these district attorneys who are elected as a almost a sort of anti-law and order candidate, progressive prosecutors is what they call themselves. Um, and I'm watching and I'm seeing both you know this trend spread from different major cities, but also seeing this issue trickle up from the city level to, say, the congressional level. And now we're also seeing it at the presidential level. We're starting to see some of the Republican presidential contenders talking about law and order, not least of which former President Trump as well. So it is very much a fixture of politics, local, state, national right now um, in a way that we haven't really seen in a while that hasn't been so much at the forefront. And I, I, I find that really fascinating. And, you know, I think there's a lot more of this to come in the year and a half ahead. That trickle up comment is is really interesting. And Lene, I wonder, as you think about this, how you think about that, you know, we talk about all all politics is national or is it all local, how you think about this focus on crime as it relates to voters and candidates across the country? Well, you know, I think we have to start with the premise that swing voters are smart and they actually know um, that not all levels of government do the same thing. And so I think there's a real reason that mayors are kind of having to grapple with this issue a lot more than, say, um, you know, gubernatorial candidates in 2022 or congressional candidates necessarily. Um, there, certainly, the Republicans were trying to use it as an attack ad, um, but it didn't really work that well, right? I mean, if it had, we would have seen a bigger red wave, I think. In, and, um, you know, that that red, red wave was obviously a lot smaller than we thought it'd be, um, but the on the mayoral level, it really matters what your what your position is on crime and what your position is on policing. And um, you know, we did eight focus groups right after the election, and we heard lots and lots of people talk about concerns. It wasn't just about like violent crime; like they're worried they're going to get mugged. Although 
although that certainly, you know, was a piece of it, it was also just about this feeling of like cities being a little bit in chaos. Um, and, you know, every single, we did eight groups of lots of different kinds of voters, every single group brought up homelessness people being on the streets, the, you know, the visibility of drug use, um, and these other things that, you know, we used to call kind of the broken windows issues that it just makes you feel like, well, this isn't really someplace I want to walk around late at night. Um, you know, I, I live in Washington, DC. I think this, the same is true here. Um, there are places that I would have felt really comfortable in 2019 walking around that I don't really want to right now at night. Um, and part of that is because they've become less populated because because um, of, you know, what people have chosen to do and where they they live during the pandemic. Um, but, you know, this is all kind of hangover from um, the the COVID changes that, that we've seen in society, drug use, fentanyl, all of these other things are, are combined. But, um, you know, swing voters said in these, um, in these focus groups, well, my senator doesn't have that much to do with <laughs> like, policies about homelessness, but you know, the mayor does. And so I think people are are being discerning about who um, who's in charge of this. And that means it is going to continue to really be a, a real and pressing policy issue for city leaders, maybe even, you know, kind of um, state legislatures. But when it comes to federal candidates, I think it's more of just a, a talking point. Um, and so, you know, it'll continue to be part of the conversation, but I don't think that, um, you know, most people think it's like Joe Biden's fault that, you know, there's a homeless person on their street. I think that, you know, they're a little more discerning than that. Well, you've touched on a couple of interesting things. One of them that those kinds of sentiments and feelings popping in those focus groups brings up a question for me that I think about a lot, which is, is there actually more crime, right? Or is it the perception of crime, right? Is it the perception that a certain neighborhood has, is, has a certain neighborhood become unsafe? Or is there a perception that it's become unsafe? You know, there are statistics about the idea that while, while maybe in some areas crime is up and obviously no one should, let's caveat, no one should be experiencing a life of 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 having to experience being the victim of crime. In any case, in, in some places where the stories of crime being up is being told, violent crime is not up, right? Violent crime is even down in some places. So I wonder, thinking about that focus group piece, Lene, how do we square perception versus in some cases, perception and reality may line up, but how much of this among voters is is in the air? And would that even suggest that actually some of those right-wing talking points are working, are working well? And you know, maybe they didn't get over the hump because they were just sort of doing terribly on, on the choice issue or on some other issue that voters ultimately went to the ballot and, and were more concerned about. I I wonder how you think about teasing out some of those distinctions. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a huge gap between perception and reality here in general. I mean, the the crime statistics are very mixed, and um, we actually can't even really um, compare year by year from 20, 2020 to 2021 to 2022, because right in the middle of the pandemic, the FBI changed how it measures crime. <laughs> so our, our crime data has always been very bad, so it's very hard to say um, whether violent 
violent crime is up or down in a certain place until, you know, 10 years later when we can look back and we have the full data, but that's not particularly useful either politically or policy-wise in the moment. Um, but the um, but the, the change in how they recorded that data actually makes that problem way worse. Um, so there was just a great piece in the Washington Post debunking um, Ron DeSantis's claims that Florida is like the safest place ever and New York is, is a hellhole and, um, you know, actually Florida has way higher murder rates than than the city of New York. So, and, you know, my colleagues have done great work on this, um, Kylie Murdoch and Jim Kessler, um, showing that uh, murder rates are actually 40% higher in states that voted for Trump. And they have been higher in states that voted for Trump in every year since 2000. So <laughs> that there, we really do see a, a, a distinction between perception and reality. But I'll say I, I saw a Gallup poll that was talking about, you know, the fact that um, the perception that crime is up. Um, and I thought two things were really interesting about the numbers. One is um, people were much more likely, like 20 points more likely to say crime is up in the nation than where they live. So that tells me they think that's like mostly somewhere else. Like, ooh, this is scary. I saw it on the news. But like, it's not like I'm worried about it in my own community. The other thing is um, when when you scroll down to the charts um, and you look at it by partisanship, uh, perceptions among Democrats and independents have been almost exactly flat for like the <laughs> they go up and down a little bit, but very, very similar across the last 20 years. And among Republicans, it's always been higher. But then when Joe Biden took office, it spiked very quickly. So I think that that might have something more to do with, you know, politics than potentially uh, with the fact that, you know, they were concerned that, you know, January 2021, all of a sudden everything was running amok. That phenomenon is interesting. And we've talked about that on, on the podcast and other issues. And we've talked about, Matt Iglesias has written about that, right? Of the idea, this happens in, um, in, in education too, right? Like you can get people to say in polls things like there's a crisis and they're indoctrinating my kids, right? But like, but my not, uh, they're indoctrinating America's children, but, but my kid's teacher is pretty good. I really like, I really like my kid's first grade teacher, but everywhere else, the first graders are, you know, being, being told to, you know, go to the bathroom in litter boxes or, or whatever. Andy, I, I wonder what you think about that perception v reality question. I think a lot about the role of conservative media in this perception versus reality. There's something Lene just said that really strikes me, which is looking at that Gallup data and seeing in the data that people will say there's a national crime problem, but it's not where they live or that it's somewhere else and it frightens them or they're concerned about it or they perceive it to be an issue, but but it's not where it's not in their backyard, it's not in their town, their city. Um, and then that makes me think of Chicago, honestly. Chicago, in the decade or so that I've been covering politics, decade plus I've been covering politics, you know, Chicago has become almost a shorthand um, in a lot of conservative media for you know, everything that is wrong with urban America, blue America. It is, you know, it's, 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 there are gun battles on every street corner and the mayors are corrupt and the unions run everything. And, you know, it's the last vestiges of political machine uh, politics of the type, you know, we saw uh, in, uh, in New York with Tammany Hall way back when. Of course, you know, Chicago does have some of those problems in certain degrees or at certain levels, but is it any more so than 
Detroit or Seattle or Los Angeles or New York or Philadelphia, I mean, any other major city, I, you know, I don't think that Chicago is some massive outlier if you actually look at the data compared to these other major cities. And these are just issues that major American cities with huge concentrations of people face. But Chicago is just this one word stand in for everything that Fox News or Newsmax or Breitbart or the Daily Wire believe is wrong or going in the wrong direction with America. And so when I hear that some of, you know, if you look in the data of this, of this, um, you know, law and order question or that there's this rampant crime problem and people say it's somewhere else, I think about how these conservative media outlets are, you know, sort of stoking this fear, but it's a fear of the other. It's a fear of somewhere else. Um, and I don't know how that plays out in terms of how people vote. Lene would know this better than I would. I mean, you know, what, what you said, Lucy, about um, you know, people saying that, you know, people are, you know, kids are are using litter boxes somewhere else, uh, but not at my school. You know, it's the same thing with members of Congress. Polling for a long time has shown that, you know, People are okay with their member of Congress, but it's all the other ones in Washington that are the problems. There is this there is this divide between someone who they perceive to know or someone who perceives to be is perceived to be familiar versus you know the sort of abstract notion of Congress or big cities. And you know I think all of these things are wrapped up in this law and order question as people are thinking about the issue coming out of the pandemic. Uh, having bad data certainly doesn't help. We don't even have the right data to know, is the, are these trends up? Are these trends down? How did the pandemic affect them? Uh, that part is especially frustrating um, in my line of work, I would say, as it as it is in both of yours. But um, you know, there's just such cognitive dissonance on this issue that you see. And uh, I do think, again, these things all come together in these more local races, Chicago mayor, New York mayor, the DAs in these different cities. That is where we're seeing all of these forces collide at the ballot box. Well, the the that detail that that you're highlighting about the way people talk about Chicago in in right wing media. I mean, it's it's a dog whistle, right? I mean, it's not just that they mean crime; it's they mean crime by black people, right? It's like that's it's a fear. It's it's stoking fear, right? Well, and I don't think it's even just the conservative media. Like if you watch the, you know, for to whatever extent some people still get their their news from, you know, broadcast news, um, uh, network television or local news, um, it's all over, right? It's everywhere. Um, I, I recently had my parents here in DC and my parents watched the news and they're, they're like turning on the DC local news. And I was like, this is terrible. I don't want to know about all these things that are happening around the corner from my house. Like, that's not great. And of course, my parents are totally freaked out because they're from like northern Minnesota where um, they, you know, their local news is, let's say, much more boring. So uh, it, it, it's it's everywhere, right? And I, I even think about um, maybe we have more visibility into it now too, in the same way that, you know, we certainly have more visibility now into um, incidences of police violence. We can see them, right? I just think about the fact that no matter what I do, my ring camera keeps telling me that something's bad happening in my neighborhood. And I've tried to turn off those notifications, but why, why do I want that on my phone every single time? So, you know, maybe we're just like getting a lot more notices of things that um, had always been going on, but now every single time I get an alert. 
Nextdoor and Citizen, those apps are destroying yeah, next the country. Door Nextdoor like, should oh be outlawed. Gosh. Like before Destroy TikTok. Destroy your faith yeah. in humanity immediately. <laughs> exactly yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. So, you know, ultimately a lot of this comes down to a question of how the conversations like this are going to shape the midterms uh, elections ahead, the midterms last year, next cycle. And and as Lene alluded to, despite the lack of a red wave in the midterms, crime is emerging as clearly an early messaging point in the 2024 cycle. Lene mentioned everyone's favorite governor from Florida. Just kidding. Uh, Ron DeSantis over the last couple of weeks went on a speaking tour of Philadelphia, Chicago, and New York. And in those speeches, he made crime a central talking point. He talked a lot about how as you alluded to, Lene, he and Florida were addressing crime properly while those other cities <laughs> and their leaders were not. But in midterm exit polls, inflation and abortion both rated as a higher issue for voters than crime. And that was probably a major factor in holding off the expected red wave. But again, through the midterms, voters trusted Republicans to handle crime better than Democrats by double digits. So this leads me to ask the question, Lene, how can Democrats tighten their messaging and win back the public's trust on crime? And, and as you think about this, I, I've, something that's been in my mind is something that you said on a roundup a few weeks ago, where you talked about mismatch sometimes between um, Democratic elected officials and what constituencies they claim to, to, to represent. You were talking in a different context, but we were talking about the squad. Um, and then, and then what voters <laughs> really actually want, what people living in communities affected, for example, by crime want and are hoping for from their elected leaders. So, so how are you thinking about that? How are you thinking about w- how Democrats should be talking about this issue to try to beat back that crazy double-digit lead that Republicans have in terms of public trust? Yeah, I mean, I think there crime. there is no question that um, the you know kind of extremes that people went to in 2020 um, in terms of activists um, really hurt the Democratic brand on crime, right? So the phrase "defund the police" is popular nowhere, um, and you know even in Minneapolis, um, in my home state, where George Floyd was murdered, they had a ballot initiative on defunding the police in the city, and the white districts voted for it by a lot and it was defeated because everyone else didn't. <laughs> so I think there's there is a real disconnect um, here between um, you know the activists and then what actual you know voters want, particularly even base voters within the the Democratic coalition. Um, so we did a um, postmortem on the 2020 election and one of the things we found really, really hurt um, was this, you know, defund the police slogan, um, the idea that Democrats were anti-police, the idea that um, kind of we were going too far and and saying, well, we're, we don't really need law enforcement. We just need like more mental health services or something, um, which I'm pro mental health services, but also, you know, public safety is a thing. So, um, so we had, we have some work to do and I think we've been starting to do that work. Um, But we have to acknowledge, A, that crime is a problem. You can't just change the subject. There are too many consultants in democratic politics whose theory is if you don't want to talk about an issue, if you're not ahead on that issue, change the subject to a different issue. (laughs) But I think if you – if 
that's all you're doing. Um, you know, if you say, well, actually, let's just talk about prescription drug pricing. Like that doesn't address people's concerns. <laughs> you have to address their concerns head on, realize it's a problem, acknowledge that we need to, um, you know, keep our communities safe. Um, and then you can go talk about prescription drug pricing all you want. And we saw really, really effective um, use of that messaging in 2022. So a lot of the battleground districts and, you know, we um, created our first um, ever super pack in 2022, shield pack, and it was focused just on this issue. Because what we found was most of the independent expenditure groups on the Democratic side spend 95% of their money or more on attacking the Republican and not on actually building up the Democrat. Um, so we went into nine races and we um, and we showed these um, badass women, they were all women, um, with their police officers in their community, you know, really um, showed their law enforcement credentials. Um, and certainly there were a lot of things going on in, in, in these elections. So I'm not going to take credit for their wins. They were excellent candidates, but we did do polling afterwards, before and afterwards, um, with people who got our targeted messages um, versus the whole population. And it was remarkable, the words that they said to describe, say, Abigail Spamberger. Law enforcement was the biggest one among our contacted universe. I will tell you, I have never seen swing voters say law enforcement is associated with Democrats writ large. Right? This was a specific thing um, that really worked in her race and in these other races. So if we do that, if we counter, um, we we get back to parity on this, but um, we have to acknowledge it's a problem and not just change the subject. And we have to push back against some of the super far left folks that are saying things that are just frankly dumb. Others may not have caught this, but Lene actually just did something buried into those comments that is the opposite of what uh, a, a typical DC insider would do, which is that she, in telling about these great wins of a pack she was involved in, said like, well, I can't take credit for all of that. And that is actually just sort of the that is opposite of DC DC culture, right? Every political consultant believes that every mail piece they've done, they turned so, the election. Kudos, that's right. Kudos to you, Lene. But the inner Minnesotan. That's right. Humble Midwesterner. The Midwesterner. That, it it overcomes the DCite, that's for sure. Amen. So Biden did call for local governments to fund police departments during his State of the Union earlier this year. And and this question, I think, then arises of how can Democrats leverage that kind of talking point from someone like the president to hit back against claims of defunding the police? I think some of the those elect, election time tactics that you're talking about are, are critical, Lene. But how do you think about this, Andy? Are those hits that can be... Uh, uh, pivoted to say like no democrats are are will that work will will that strategy work those kinds of talking points saying we are the fund the police party <laughs> i mean I, if they're delivered in the right way or they are built out into a more nuanced message about what additional funding to the police might actually look like what smart policing might look like community focused policing there's all kinds of schools of thought here about how to reform policing to try to prevent what we have seen in so many cities, these tragedies, most recently in Memphis, of course, with Tyree Nichols, but George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of the country. If Democrats can take what President Biden 
has, you know, said in broad brushstrokes in his State of the Union and has said elsewhere, and then break that down into, you know, a more substantive message that walks the line between not being defund the police, which we know is basically a complete loser of a political issue, but also not saying we we too are the party of law and order. I mean, the Democrats tr- tried that uh, decades ago, and there were some pretty disastrous consequences um, of some of those policies at the federal level. And, you know, that is something that Democrats have tried to, not tried to repair, but have tried to atone for and to move past. They've got to find that middle path. The work that um, Lene is talking about and, and the work that they did with Shield Pack in 2022 is an example of this, certainly from an electoral perspective of how do you, as a Democrat, capture, or how do you, you know, sort of channel this issue in a way that shows that you care about the safety of the community you're representing and not that you're casting in with one extreme or the other. I mean, it's not like the the conservative or Republican message on policing or, uh, you know, law enforcement is especially nuanced. I mean, it is really <laughs> like a stoking fear, again, about Chicago and about, you know, the other in that other place who is, you know, doing all kinds of violent and dangerous things. And, you know, God forbid one day they come to where you live. I mean, that's not exactly a smart, nuanced, well thought out policy position either. So there is space there for Democrats. Uh, but it is also a, um, you know, it's a, it's a, I've sensed a lot of angst from Democrats, the ones that I talk to, especially members of Congress, people who work for them here in DC, because, you know, they, they more than ever feel the heat from some of the grassroots activists on this issue. And every time another tragedy happens, like with Tyree Nichols, the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, they hear those activists almost as loudly as anyone else uh, crying for, you know, drastic action. You know, again, we still hear some versions of defund the police. You hear other iterations of a pretty, you know, uh, far left or hard left message there. And so these members are trying to navigate that. They're trying to come up with uh, policies, messages, positions, campaign slogans that can satisfy really the majority of Democratic voters, because the majority of Democratic voters are not defund the police. And I spent time in South Carolina in the 2020 race talking to uh, overwhelmingly Black voters. And, you know, they're, they're the last people who want defund the police. Uh, uh, you know, these uh, a Black veteran in Columbia, South Carolina, who is 58 years old, like the last thing he wants is defund the police. But, but they have to have something. They have to hear something from, from President Biden, from members of Congress, and especially from these mayors at the local level who are clearly bearing the brunt of this. That conversation right now feels like it's very much ongoing. It is still forming. Um, I don't, Lene, you may be talking to uh, Democrats about this very issue, given what you did in 2022. And I'm sure they're probably, their door is wide open uh, for what to, for hearing what you guys did. In fact, I briefed 50 of them at the DCCC at the House campaign headquarters on Monday <laughs> uh, on this very topic. But um, I think, Andy, what you said about the activist piece is really, um, really important because some of those activists are now in Congress, right? Cori Bush is 
is a member of Congress now. And so there was actually a bill, to your point, Lucy, a lot of folks um, in the Democratic Party, especially in kind of the battleground districts, knew this was a problem, wanted to get ahead of it, wanted to show that, in fact, we are a party that supports smart law enforcement and safe communities. Um, so they put a police funding bill on the floor and the squad almost took it down and it became a huge inter-democratic party rift. So instead of the storyline being, you know, democratically held Congress passes police funding bill, the storyline was Democratic Party fighting about policing and reform and whether we're funding the police and blah, 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 which was not helpful. <laughs> so they ultimately got there, but because it was so messy in the interim, we didn't get the good story out of that that we were trying to get. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's what we're grappling with is there are some folks in the party, including in Congress, who do not want to fund law enforcement. Um, and, and that makes it difficult for us to, you know, show that, that what we're doing is, is really serving the whole of America or of the rest of our coalition. Before we move on from this, I want to, I want to zoom in on, on something that is kind of wonky and nitty gritty, which you alluded to earlier and is so crucial, which is around uniform crime data, right? Lack of uniformity in the statistics around how we report on crimes. And when DeSantis has been on his speaking tour, he's been making the claim that Florida, as you say, leads the nation in protecting law enforcement officers and that the crime rate in Florida is at a 50-year low, while New York City has had a 23% surge in, quote, major crime, end quote, in 2022. And a lot of people, including Philip Bump at the Washington Post, pointed out that DeSantis really is comparing apples to oranges, which actually in this this case is not even necessarily DeSantis's fault, right? This yeah. is a global problem that we have, which is that different law enforcement agencies release different types of data, right? And and even traditionally, we might have anchored to FBI, FBI guidelines around how crime data is reported. And that's an issue I worked on years ago, but, but that is changing too. DeSantis was talking about major crime in New York City increasing, but for example, the Jacksonville, Florida Sheriff's Department doesn't release data of that kind. And, and this is one of those under-the-surface issues that really, really impacts our, our politics, but is not very well understood. Lene, I wonder if you can sort of give people a little bit of a primer on this, of ex explaining what some of the pitfalls are when we try to make these types of comparisons without uniform crime data. Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, a lot of this stuff is reported not necessarily by the state, but as you said, Lucy, it's about the county. It's about a sheriff's office, right? And so um, in a lot of rural red counties across the country, they just don't send in any data, like none. <laughs> So there's a reason my colleagues focused on murder because they could actually um, – it's easier to track murder because there's a body and it's usually in the news. And so we generally think that the murder stats are probably better than than the rest of the stats. Um, and so that's what they compared. But um, but we can't really know what the rest of uh, what the rest of those numbers are because um, it's – we're relying on local county officials to ladder up to the federal government and, and they just don't. Um, 
you know, the other piece, though, as I said, is we've now changed um, how we're reporting these crimes and um, in in some good ways that will make it, um, you know, that will make it easier to track in the future, hopefully. But um, during the pandemic, um, they changed from a rule that said uh, you only report the most serious crime that happens in an incident to saying you report every crime that happened in an incident. So if someone is assaulted and also robbed and also, you know, horrible other things happen to them, previous to the pandemic, we were only reporting the worst one, not that seven crimes happened at the same time. And now we're reporting all seven. That's good, but obviously not good politically because it made it look like there were like seven times more crimes <laughs> because we weren't reporting the other six before. So, um, you know, all, all of this is super fraud and obviously, you know, people cherry pick too. It's like, well, carjackings are up, but murders are down and violent crime versus major crime versus um, property crime. And there's just um, a lot of ways to make it sound like um, you have the answer uh, if you are a politician. And there's a lot of ways to um, say that the other side is um, is wrong. And in fact, my, my colleagues have now had um, multiple people write response reports to them from Heritage Foundation. <laughs> and I said, that's when you know you're doing a really good job is when another think tank is like, oh man, we got to write a response report to this. And then we wrote a response to their response because their response was garbage, but um, it, it's hilarious. So yeah, if you want to wonder what it looks like to work at a think tank, that's that's what we do. Heritage is thought crime. That's right. That's what it, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As we close this out, Andy, you know, Lene is talking about that distinction in part between how we see violent crime or the very real rise in property crime, including robbery, since the onset of the pandemic. As we think about closing this out, any thoughts on how that element of this dynamic does or doesn't shift the conversation on crime for people? I'm going to pander to the audience a little bit here. In my mind, the 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 politicology audience is highly informed, highly educated. They track this stuff in part thanks to the amazing people um, on this show, with the exception of myself, of course. But I would urge everyone listening, when you read about crime, maybe more than any other big national story, you have to take these kinds of statistics with a huge grain of salt, a fistful of salt. Because, you know, as Lene just described, the data, how we collect the data has changed. And that is not an insignificant change. That is actually quite a significant change that would really make someone think, oh my gosh, my world has just become more dangerous when in fact, no, actually we're just counting differently. And it may even be, become less, be, be becoming less dangerous, but because of the way the data is counted, you're thinking the opposite. Crime data is such an incomplete patchwork of of reporting agencies and the systems that it that 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 contain that data that distill it and that provide it to us that I would really just urge people to almost more than any other issue you might read about on the front page of USA Today or on the nightly news or splashed across Facebook to be very cautious about what you read you know th this is an issue where we are so far behind on the data the accuracy of the data and what the data means um, don't ignore these stories by any means, but just be careful because we're really still 
we're really still crawling when it comes to using crime data to draw big conclusions when we should be on our feet and sprinting. So keep that in mind when we're talking about these kinds of issues. That's very wise advice. Well said. On Monday, a state court in Delaware released a filing in the Dominion Voting Systems defamation lawsuit against Fox News. The motion included quotes from a deposition of Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of the media empire that owns Fox News. And in the deposition, Murdoch acknowledged that several hosts for his network promoted the lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and that he could have stopped them but didn't. This was just one of the revelations that came from the most recent filing. Murdoch said it was, quote, wrong for Tucker Carlson to host My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell after the election. He also signaled it was a business decision. He said, quote, it is not red or blue, it is green. In an email to former speaker and member of the Fox News board, Paul Ryan, Murdoch said that host Sean Hannity had, quote, been privately disgusted by Trump for weeks, but was scared to lose viewers. Ryan repeatedly warned the Murdochs to stop spreading the election lies and to move on from Trump. These came in just the latest of a series of filings in the lawsuit. In another filing from mid-February, Dominion revealed eye-popping messages from Murdoch and some of the most high-profile Fox hosts, including Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram. Some of the biggest bombshells from the filing show that Fox's most prominent hosts knew their election-denying guests were lying. On November 18th of 2020, Tucker Carlson texted Laura Ingram and said, quote, Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. And Ingram responded, quote, Sydney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy, end quote. Rudy, of course, being Rudy Giuliani. Murdoch himself called Trump's voter fraud claims, quote, really crazy stuff. And one of Lou Dobbs's producers, John Fawcett, said he believed Powell as, quote, doing LSD and cocaine and heroin and shrooms. I actually think she'd be more fun if that were the case, but I don't know. Maybe not all together. (laughs) Yes. Whoa. Whoa. That's a lot. Days later, Powell was hailed as, quote, one of the country's leading appellate attorneys and a great American on Dobbs's show, the show produced by that very producer. So I guess let's start with you, Andy. What do you make of the differences between what Fox hosts were saying in public versus what they were saying in private? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I mean, where, where to even begin here? You know, there is, um, there is the emoji on the iPhone where it's the head with the explosion out the top. That's just been me for weeks now as I have been absorbing this Fox story, just my head exploding over and over and over again. I mean, put simply, what we've learned from these filings in the Dominion versus Fox case are by far the most revealing and damning inside look at how Fox News operates as an institution. We got small glimpses of this, hints of it, former producers speaking to reporters. You know, I wrote about Fox a lot in my book because 
almost a sort of precursor story to the Dominion big lie was the Seth Rich story that Sean Hannity and Fox played a huge part in amplifying. But you know what I was able to gather in my reporting for the book compared to what Dominion has unearthed in this lawsuit, I mean, it is the, the two are not comparable at all. I mean, what we see is Fox truly exposed for what it is, which is a profit-making entertainment juggernaut. Fox has, you know, continues to say that it's a journalistic institution, fair and balanced, et cetera, et cetera. But over and over again, what comes out of these Dominion records is this need above all else to appeal to the Fox audience base, which wanted to believe that Donald Trump had actually won the 2020 election and that Joe Biden had 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 lost and instead had stolen it or had rigged it, which was how he won. And an absolute fear of losing that audience, losing those eyeballs, losing the advertising dollars that came with that loss of, of of audience if Fox did not feed its viewership what they wanted. I mean, one of the texts that that stands out the most to me was one from Tucker Carlson where he talks about how Fox's stock was taking a hit. I believe in response to actually a Fox News reporter, one of the few internally, tweeting something saying, you know, essentially a fact check about these Dominion claims on Fox, this Fox reporter, reporter tweeting this and Tucker privately texting someone and saying that, you know, the stock could take a hit because of this. I mean, that, and then of course, the Rupert Murdoch line about it's not red, it's blue, it's green. And that is what really stands out to I me. Mean, there's so many other things that do so many other like pieces of this that I just cannot get enough of. But that I think is really the core of this and what these new filings have have brought to light. And again, my head is just exploding over and over again the more I learned about this. That then it's not blue, it's red. It's not blue, it's not red, it's green is really kind of an incredible thing to say when you think about the millions of Americans trusting Fox as their news source, right? That's sort of frightening. (laughs) Lene, how are you thinking about all of this? I mean, I think... It doesn't surprise me, right? I mean, the fact that this is all an act for most of them, right? For all of them. Um, But what it makes me think is um, what are um, the fake populists that are actually in elected office saying behind the scenes, right? Is this the same kind of text that Josh Hawley sent to Ron DeSantis? Like, we know that these people are all fake and, you know, performing an act. Um, and see, we've frequently talked about the, the Ivy League education of uh, many of the fakest populists that are the loudest on the right. Um, and it, so I think it it doesn't surprise me that's what they're saying behind the scenes. Of course they are, um, because this is all fake. Um, but I think what is interesting about it is they they might get caught this time. You know, I mean, the the question, we have very broad, obviously, First Amendment um, protections in this country, as we should, 
I love it. I'm a big First Amendment person. Um, but one thing you're not supposed to do is to just straight up lie, say something um, about someone or something that is a straight up lie and you know it's a lie and you're just doing it despite the fact that you know it's a lie. Um, and that's what they did. And so I think it's really hard for me to see how um, in this libel case um, that, you know, where Dominion got all of this information, um, how they can continue in court to say, no, 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 no. We, we weren't lying. We, we like definitely thought that maybe the election was stolen. We just, we weren't sure if the election was stolen. So, and, and that's their only defense right now. Um, and I think, you know, the, <laughs> the idea that you can, you can say, well, you know, I was texting the other day that this is a total lie. And then in court, you're like, no, no, I, w- I was confused. Like, it doesn't line up. And so I am hopeful that that means uh, legally that Dominion can actually do something about this now, which, um, you know, there aren't very many people who can um, bring any consequences to Fox News. But this might be one of the only times that they actually have to um, pay up for for the damage that they've done. So in the in the wake of the 2020 election, Rupert Murdoch actually instructed Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott that the network should start to focus on the Senate runoff elections in Georgia, saying to her that it was really important to help Republicans in any way that they can. So I'm I'm thinking as as we talk about this about whether or not either of you think that that kind of explicitly partisan position change? Like, does that explicitly partisan position change anything about how we should view Fox? And something in my mind are, Lede, this is like a specialty area of yours, but but uh, Democrats who have really tried to um, uh, come to the table to break bread with Republicans. So there's a, for example, there's a Democratic congressman in Pennsylvania named Matt Cartwright. He is in a district that Donald Trump actually carried in 2020 by about three points. And he's very proud of the fact, I've heard him talk about this, of the fact that he is always happy to go on Fox News. He feels like as part of being in a district like that, a purple district, Democratic member of Congress in a Trump supporting district, that he has to go to be on Fox News and, you know, embrace it and and really kind of get in there. But I think, I wonder, Andy, how this kind of news of this kind of uh, uh, <laughs> instruction behind the scenes at Fox, like, how should that change or not the way Democrats think about making Fox News appearances? Like, is that a good idea or is that sort of a fool's errand? How How should we think about that? I don't know if a, a, a moderate Democrat like Congressman Cartwright would be surprised to see Rupert Murdoch instructing the CEO of Fox to put their weight behind Senate Republicans in this runoff. I mean, I think that was always the implicit understanding of Fox that it had picked aside in the you know DNR blue and red uh, divide of our times. And would use its megaphone to uh, help one side over the other. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it changes, say, uh, Congressman Cartwright and his calculations about going on Fox. Um, it certainly, it's. I think it is important to see these things explicitly, to see the text, the actual receipts 
as we like to say, as opposed to the perception of it, though that perception is incredibly well supported and and grounded in years and years and years of Fox being Fox. This is what Fox does. I mean, I think when the Tea Party was in its early stages in 09 and 10, Fox also played a instrumental role in helping promote it, spreading the word about it. You know, I don't know if the Tea Party would have been quite what it was without the help and the, the the backing of Fox. You know, what I come back to thinking about the connecting themes of all of this new information, these, this, this, this blockbuster information we're getting from these lawsuits is it almost seems like, if not, it actually is, Fox is captive to its audience. It is fearful of its audience. I mean, there's a exchange in there where Sean Hannity talks about how he's been getting an earful from people he knows, including just at dinner that day or the day before. I can't remember the exact timeline of it, but, you know, about Fox's coverage. Obviously, Fox's decision to call Arizona and thus the 2020 election writ large uh, before anyone else was clearly this massive schism, this this existential moment for Fox that caused significant numbers of its viewership to go to Newsmax, go to OAN, go somewhere else. And this was a, this was a massive crisis, maybe one of the biggest crises in the network's history. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like Frankenstein's monster. You know, you've, you, 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 you spend so long building this thing, creating this thing, and then you lose control of it. And I think what Fox did is it was battling internally as it was post 2020, as it was embracing and putting on air ever more wild theories about how the 2020 election could have been stolen, many including Dominion, some not. Um, you know, I think that was just the moment when it's like they have lost control of this, but they do not want to let it go. And they are going to find increasingly outlandish theories to try to satisfy that audience, to try to show that they're still on the team. They're still the good guys. Um, and, you know, and, and if you're, again, if you're someone who's going on Fox, if you're, if you're, you know, a democratic congressperson, um, I don't know, maybe you still think you need to, you know, that some of your constituency is still a loyal Fox viewer and you want to be in front of them where they get their news. Um, but you know, I don't think anyone is looking at Fox quite the same now as they did before we learned all of this about their post 2020, uh, you know, struggles internally. Yeah. I mean, I think if we thought that if Matt Cartwright thought that by not going on Fox, that would mean that Fox would have, um, you know, a crisis and, you know, not be able to operate anymore, that it would do damage to Fox in any way, he wouldn't go on. But the, the truth is that it wouldn't. And that, um, the viewership of Fox is, um, more than the viewership of MSNBC and CNN and combined. It's huge viewership. Um, and particularly in these kind of purpley states and places. Um, and so we actually run some trainings for members of Congress on how to go on Fox um, because we think it is important that you are articulating the Democratic message there too. Um, and part of that training is knowing which shows to go on and not go on. We're not, you're not going to go on Tucker Carlson, like F Tucker Carlson. That's not a thing, but 
you know, you're going to go on Dana Perino's show. That's a very different thing. Um, you know, only go on on certain issues, only go on on certain shows. Um, and, um, and realize when you are on, you aren't trying to persuade the person that turned the channel to Fox. You are trying to persuade maybe his wife who's sitting on the couch thinking, hmm, that sounds kind of bananas. You know, there are a lot of people. Um, in fact, I was in the house office building on Monday and now every house um, television is turned to Fox. And I was like, oh my God, I'm just trying to have a cup of coffee at the Pret. Like, why is this happening to me? It is not the worst implication of insurrectionist speaker Kevin McCarthy taking over, but it, it was very damaging to my personal mental health on Monday. <laughs> But like, there's a lot of people, you know, maybe you're in the doctor's office, maybe you're wherever and, and you didn't pick it, but it's on. And so I think there are some folks, um, for whom, um, they, you know, that's what they're hearing. Can you inject some sanity into, um, and just demonstrate that there are Democrats that aren't the caricature that they're trying to create? I, I do think that's helpful. I think, um, the fact that the Democratic caucus like banned everyone from going on Fox for multiple years during the Tea Party movement um, was a bad idea. And I think we have to engage on it and just be careful about who which shows we go on. Well, speaking of things that are deleterious to one's mental health, as we speak, the Conservative Political Action Conference, aka CPAC, is underway in a very creepy resort center in National Harbor, Maryland. Thankfully, it's no longer in Washington. Um but but this relates to the the Fox episodes because over the last several years, Fox has been very closely intertwined with CPAC. It's been a featured sponsor of the event and has traditionally aired the entire conference on its Fox Nation streaming platform. In 2021, <laughs> Fox Nation paid $250,000 to help underwrite the event. But this year, Fox is not a CPAC sponsor. On Monday... Fox staffers told the Daily Beast that they haven't received guidance on how to cover the event. And this is an event that started on Wednesday. None of Fox's hosts are going to appear at this year's conference, even though people like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram have both been regulars at CPACs in years past. And CPAC is dealing with its own PR crisis. In January, the Daily Beast reported that a former Herschel Walker campaign staffer accused CPAC chairman Matt Schlapp of groping him. Fox isn't the only one distancing itself from CPAC either. Former Vice President Mike Pence declined an invite, and culture warrior Ron DeSantis is not in, on the schedule for CPAC, which is very surprising, but is instead slated for two events in Texas while CPAC goes on in Greater Washington. Speaker Kevin McCarthy and GOP Chair Ronna McDaniel are also not joining the CPAC speaker list. So, Thinking about this, especially, Andy, thinking about some of those silos that you're talking about developing within the right-wing media echo chamber, what do you make of the Fox blackout of CPAC? I think it speaks to a larger identity crisis that is playing out on the right side of the political spectrum. I think it is... One of many examples we're seeing right now where there's this sorting process happening, um, almost a, a sort of a reorientation of, you know, who is the leader on the right and who is falling in line behind whom. We're obviously seeing uh, Republican presidential 
candidates announce that they're entering the race, openly challenging former President Trump, uh, a show of, you know, dissent that you just didn't see during the Trump presidency and even during the first couple of years of the Biden presidency. Um, you know, CPAC is a strange affair. I have covered maybe seven or eight of them. It's a fever dream. Were, yeah. Lucy's it, it, attended. It is, I've fe- heard stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is, It. yeah, it, I've, I covered it when it was, um, you know, in Northwest DC at the Marriott there. And then it, when it moved to National Harbor, it was even stranger because, you know, uh, National Harbor is this sort of created out of nothing uh, community just south of DC along the river. Uh, there's like a Ferris wheel nearby. There's a casino. The little village itself is almost kind of like, um, you know, it's like a Potemkin village kind of thing where it's just created out of. So it's like the basically. Truman Show. It's like a Truman yeah, Show. It's a Truman no Show. Yeah. yeah. Like people just descend upon it. I don't think it. so. Yeah. And you can't get there from public transportation. I mean, I have a colleague who's attending it covering it this week. And, you know, I, I think she thought it was in DC and I had to sort of explain to her, no, it's a kind of out there and it's hard to get to. And it's sort of weird. The Gaylord Hotel is, is, you know, a beautiful place, but like, once you go in there, you're kind of like in the vortex. Um, it does weird things to the mind, but traditionally CPAC is the place to go for all of the Republican hopefuls for president, for Senate, the media leaders, the young activists on the rise. It is a place where you can all be together. You know, you can get some time on the main stage if you're a big name. You can be on a panel. There's parties afterward. Lots of crazy stories about those. To see CPAC in this diminished form suggests to me that, one, there are you know, concerns among, say, the Mike Pence's or Nikki Haley's or whomever of the world that it just doesn't matter that much anymore. And that schlepping to National Harbor and giving a speech in front of 300 activists just doesn't carry the same cachet that it used to. I mean, Donald Trump, one of his, one of the big speeches he gave on his way to running for president and then improbably winning was a big event at CPAC. I was there, you know, the, the vibe in the room was... Um, you know, it it was like a rock show. People were going crazy for him back then. And that was kind of the first inkling I had. I was like, huh, I might actually do this. That's odd. Uh, look how right I was there. Um, but to see it sort of, you know, lose that that um stature suggests to me that conservatives, especially big ones, you know, big Republicans running for president, just don't feel the need to all get on the same stage together, don't feel the need to attend this cattle call and that they can you know, chart a path on their own and the sort of traditional events, institutions, gathering places don't matter as much as they used to. Do you think, Lene, given what we've learned elsewhere in the Dominion filings about Fox's willingness to put profits over morality, that this pivot by Fox around CPAC, does that say something about how well CPAC is or is not resonating with with viewers or with main, mainstream, I hate to use the word mainstream, but mainstream ours? Yeah, I mean, I think Andy's totally right that this is, it does feel like an identity crisis. I think, you know, it's hard. I was, I was reading the coverage and I was like, 
is CPAC trying to be establishment or is it trying to be QAnon or what, like what is happening here? (laughs) And I think that's a real question, right? I don't think, I think a lot of people don't know if CPAC belongs to their wing of the Republican party. And so it's lost its cachet in part um, because of that. So I think, um, you know, it used to be like, I mean, the experience I have had is that I, I, have not attended, thank God, um, as you both have. So I miss the fever dream. But, you know, I usually just see all the matching khakis walking around the area with their matching little um, little lanyards and things. And they, like, descend. And you're like, oh, my God, it's CPAC day. This is the worst. So um, – but those used to be, like, college Republicans, you know, that and, – and this is a – different thing, I think, but I don't, I don't really know what CPAC is doing. Um, and you know, the, the Fox thing is weird, but I also can't quite put a finger on like what their motivation is. Was it, you know, is it that somebody at Fox like doesn't want to look like they're in the bag for Trump because they're equally open to DeSantis or some other crazy person? Um, and you know, so they didn't want to give him the coverage. Like, is, is it that, you know, CPAC is so crazy now that OAN and Newsmax are are taking over because Fox is too moderate. Like it's it's just totally unclear to me what's going on here, but um, it is fascinating to watch. I just I just don't know what Lene has against blue blazers and khakis. That's all. <laughs> that's all Well, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week, let's talk about what we're watching. Lene, what have you got for us? So I think I am about to predict Joe Biden's very first veto, um, which is going to be on in uh, an interesting, we'll say, message bill uh, that the Republicans put up um, around environmental, social, and governance investing. ESG, which is, um, you know, there was a Department of Labor rule that was issued saying that financial companies um, can consider the long-term societal effects of investment decisions as part of the decisions that they're making. So effects on climate change, effects on poverty, you know, things that are um, having impact on the world are something that you can consider um, when making investment decisions with, you know, people's retirement accounts or whatever else they're managing. Um, And uh, this has now become um, the, the favorite of the right to call woke investing, um, right. So they brought this, uh, they brought up a, uh, a resolution to ban woke investing and they obviously passed it in Kevin McCarthy's insurrectionist house. Um, but Joe Manchin and John Tester both voted for it yesterday. <laughs> and so we now have, um, you know, this is, it's going to the president and I assume he's going to veto it. Like, but I don't think he's going to sign a ban on woke investing. That doesn't really seem like uh, his his jam. Um, and I think the climate folks would be particularly angry if he did. Um, so this could potentially be Joe Biden's first veto. And I just think it's hilarious because, you know, like woke investing is going to be a thing all of these 2024 candidates are talking about. And I was like, what is ESG? I had to go Google it and figure out like what they were even talking about. But now I'm up to speed. And now I assume I'm going to have to hear about it every single day between now in the presidential election in 2024. That's a good one. Andy, what's on your radar? Well, I just want to say ESG. I, I have some reporting coming out on that next week at ProPublica. 
um, from the conservative side and in, in, in their increasing obsession with this. I, I too don't quite understand how ESG or woke investing, woke capitalism, whatever, whatever you want to call it, all of a sudden became this really hot button Republican issue. But um, maybe you guys are working on that and I'll, I'll report on it from my side. Um, thing I'm watching, uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court race. There was a primary uh, just recently that narrowed the field of candidates there from uh, multiple down to two, the two finalists. And there is a, it's a nonpartisan race as state Supreme Court races are in Wisconsin, but one candidate is very clearly the left of center candidate. One candidate is very clearly the right of center candidate. Whoever wins that election in April, I believe it is, will decide the composition of power on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court one way or the other. Now you may say, Andy, I don't live in Wisconsin. Why would I care about this race? Or maybe I live in Wisconsin. Why should I care about this race? In Wisconsin has been a fascinating state to watch for the last 10 or even 15 years. Really a place where we have seen the plan by uh conservatives in the Republican Party to try to preserve what we'd like to call minority rule uh, at every, in any way possible. So you see these incredibly gerrymandered borderlines in Wisconsin, especially for the state legislature. We're in a situation in Wisconsin where you may have a majority of voters in that state voting for Democratic state members of the Assembly and the Senate, a majority there. And yet Republican candidates win a majority or even a supermajority in those state legislative chambers because the lines are so mangled. They are so gerrymandered by the Republicans who hold power. You know, it's politicians deciding, you know, picking their own voters instead of the other way around. The Supreme Court in that state has been really the final decider for whether these gerrymandered plans, whether restrictions on voting, whether all kinds of other minority rule styled legislation should stand or fall. This election is going to play a big part in whether uh, democracy, as we, you know, one person, one vote, voters pick the politicians, not the other way around, will be revitalized in that state or whether it will go in the opposite direction. And Wisconsin will continue down a path it's been it's been on for the last, again, 10 or 15 years. So it's a small you know, in the scheme of the, the nation, a small race, um, but I think it has massive repercussions, not just for the state of Wisconsin, but for, you know, this whole uh, battle we're having over voting and elections and democracy in the country right now. So that, keep an eye out for that. That's such a good flag. Wisconsin, more than truly any other state I know, is such a such a knife's edge state. They, you know, they the people who oversee the elections, the Wisconsin Election Commission is chosen by the legislature. So that's very scary. And there's a there's a special election for a, a, a Senate race, I think, in Wisconsin also coming up in that same April date that could determine whether one chamber has a supermajority that would make basically their their supermajority veto proof against against Democratic Governor Tony Evers. So super consequential. That's a great flag. I, I just want to mention a story that is probably on most people's radar, but is is worth mentioning um, in part because Ron and I talked about it this week, uh, which is the uh, changing 
tune around how uh, federal agencies, including the Department of Energy and the FBI, are talking about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is that the uh, Department of Energy has now said that that their conclusion is is low confidence, but but that a the likely origin of the pandemic came from a lab incident. And FBI Director Christopher Wray also has said, quote, you know, the FBI for quite some time now assessed the, the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident. So mentioning this <laughs> to to basically flag the, the the willingness to have the discussion around around this issue because it has certainly been um, a hot potato and has also been uh, a question looming around the pandemic and and in the the aftermath of the height of the pandemic that that has been very politicized and and hard for people to talk about and as Ron and I and the politicology team talked about it this week you could very reasonably have a feeling like uh that is both a that is both a worthy question to pursue and discussion to have and also you could still also be a stridently pro vaccine right why are we why are we forcing ourselves into these corners and silos around uh, around an issue that has been very consequential and has sadly uh, taken the lives of millions and millions of people around the planet. So uh, a flag that Rod and I discussed it, and he said more to, more to come in that discussion in the weeks ahead. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss the rise of the career candidate, where can everybody find you on the internet, Andy? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Andy Kroll and would always encourage you to check out ProPublica.org. Um, we are publishing fantastic investigative journalism, some of it even by me, uh, on a daily basis and, you know, not affiliated with any party, any clique, any ideology. You will find, you know, some of the best investigative reporting there. So check it out. Awesome. And Lene? I'm still on Twitter at Lene Erickson, though I don't check it very much. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe just go to Third Way's website and subscribe so that you can get all of our great analysis and, and my colleagues' work that, that I was talking about on crime. And I am on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. 